Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Sarah Heath. She is a United Methodist pastor serving a really interesting church in Southern California. She's also a sought-after speaker. She speaks all across the country on topics varying from creativity, authentic leadership, and learning how to tell your story. She's a prolific writer as well. Her most recent book is What's Your Story? Seeing Your Life Through God's Eyes, How Joseph's Story Can Help You Tell Yours. I give you Sarah Heath. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You have written a book called What's Your Story? Which That's is, a true story. Yeah, it, it's actually, it is a true story. It has the added advantage of being true. And we were just talking about you and your friend Mike McCarg, and he, you named him Science Mike. It's a true story. That part is also true. So you're sitting there. Pete Holmes is in the room, right? The comedian? I'm pretty sure Pete was there. If not Pete, I know for sure that uh, Rob Bell was there. And where are you guys? In Rob Bell's house? I think it might have been. The, ba- the back house or like the main kitchen? I can't I can't even remember. All I, I think it was, I feel like it was that because we were trying to figure out which. So we have like a, a group of friends and there's like four mics somehow at least. And so Mike Magura is one of them and so is Mike McCarg. And so they asked which Mike I was talking about. I said, you know, science one, science Mike. And so um, I later think we were relaying that story and it made all of us laugh so hard that we decided that we were just going to call him Science Mike from now on. And so when his book came out, he uh, got me a copy and he literally in the in the book just wrote like, this is your fault. He said, this is all your fault, <laughs> which I don't think I can be blamed for Science Mike. He is an incredible human and has incredible parents that made him so incredible. But Yeah, I mean, nature and nurture. I mean, you could be part nature. of the nurture part. I can, I, how do I, hold on, turn this off. I don't want the sounds. The sounds, the sounds of the emails and the notifications yeah. and the announcements. You're probably very popular. You get a lot of emails, I would guess. Uh, I would say it's more because I'm a pastor at a church. So people that's just why. email you, like, hey, the committee meeting, when is it? What's happening? The altar guild, go, 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 go. No, I wish we had an altar guild. Uh, no, it's more. Uh, Do you have any guilds? Uh, we have no guilds. So we are a new start church. We just restarted in July. So they were a church that's all like 80 years old. Um, well, the church building's 80 years old. That church itself started in 1912. And they had whittled down to 17 to 27 folks going. It's in the heart of a really cool city called Costa Mesa. So they asked me to come in in July. The bishop uh, thought it would be a good idea for me to come in and help revitalize the community. Science Mike was one of our first speakers. Uh, and it's been really cool because it's uh, a new community merging with uh, a community that's been there for quite a while. So there's a lot of roots, which is kind of cool. Um, but we have kind of merged this community, but it means that we have a new leadership team. So it's just called a leadership board. I got no guilds, no committees. It's very unmethodist of me. Do you have potlucks? Uh, no, because they tore down all the buildings but our sanctuary. So we don't have anywhere to have potlucks. Because potlucks are key for Methodists. Right? I feel like potlucks and sing-alongs. Bad, and- bad jello. And that, and, that, <sighs> and that punch that's like part fruit juice, part like Sprite, and then an ice cream thing. It's like yeah, in the Midwest lawn. Yeah, it's yeah just- I don't know what's happening in that. And then there, there's also these things that they call salads that have like marshmallows in them. So those are confusing as well. 
Ambrosia, but, uh, I've heard that was called. Ambrosia, there you go. But I honestly, we don't have any potlucks yet. We will be having a community potluck, which we're super excited about, uh, that will be with our, um, we work with an organization uh, in the area that works with largely the Hispanic community. And we're partnering with them and hoping to do some community development work. And so we're going to be doing potlucks, but it's going to be kind of share your traditions. So we'll uh, get to experience amazing Mexican food and also share our Ambrosia. I don't know what we bring to the table, but there you go. That's what we're hey, doing. Hey, you're bringing the Methodist joy and love. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, and, so like, and Science Mike, he went, you were part of the same Rob Bell event where he came in an atheist yep. and came out yep. believing in more spiritual mm-hmm. transcendent realities. Yeah. And you were the nose ring pastor that hugged him. I, that was me. That's true. That is who I am. That is my identity. That's my identity. That's why I was created. So basically, it's a downhill slope from here. Now, why you wrote this book? What's your story? And uh, it centers on the book of uh, the in the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. And our listeners won't be able to see this, but maybe I'll put it in the show notes or I'll social media. This this book um, was given to me by our middle school librarian. It's called I Am Joseph, and it's illustrated. Ooh, by, I love that. by Barbara Cohen. It's like a children's book. And it was banned from our library because it shows Joseph's buttocks here with Potiphar. Oh, look at that. Potiphar's wife. Not Potiphar's, Potiphar's wife, rather. <laughs> Potiphar's wife, rather. Yeah, Potiphar's <laughs> wife, And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a taunt buttocks on Joseph. I mean, he's clearly a spin or, 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 or squad enthusiast. But um, that, it got banned because of that. And so Mrs. Uh, Streitz, Barbara Streitz, gave me this book. And that story That's is awesome. near and dear to my heart. So... Why, why Joseph for you? I mean, the book is great because I think it, it, it ta- I mean, when I, I just interviewed this woman, who, Emily Smith, who wrote this book called The Power of Meaning. And she talks mm. about key tools for a meaningful life. And right. one of them is storytelling. She thinks that this is one of the key things. All people that have a meaningful life, uh, most of them have this in common, the ability to, to, to narrate their story, to make sense of, of the, 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 the peaks, the valleys, the agony, the ecstasy. So why Joseph? Actually, so I also um, saw a pretty fantastic Joseph when I was about 12 years old. Uh, my mom took me to go see Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat. So upset later in life when I realized it was just a long coat. There wasn't really Technicolor or anything. Um, but it had Donny Osmond in it. So you could think that maybe that was the grain, but it was like Donny Osmond. He had just kind of gone past peak, but he was still so shiny. Um, I remember thinking like, this man is more beautiful than me. Um, <laughs> like I'm 12, like what's wrong with me, mom? Uh, but you're definitely I, more beautiful than him now. I mean, you, you've caught point. up. You're fine at this point. So, uh, I will be honest that this book came from a lot of places, but one of them was, I went to a storyline conference by Donald Miller. Um, this was actually just right around the time when I met Mike and uh, a couple other folks in that group have become sort of like my church. And they had recommended going to this storyline conference to sort of, understand our lives as story. And so it starts with him talking about what's a good story. And he used Joseph from the Old Testament as an example of a good story. And it was funny because everyone else in the conference then outlined their own story. I spent the next like day at least outlining the story of Joseph because I've always found it really interesting. Um, I find it really interesting because it doesn't end with him pulling himself up by his bootstraps and like now he's the second in command. It it really shows in the end that he's got a decision to make with his brothers. It's just such a great story that has ups and downs. And I think even as a kid, I could relate to Joseph being in prison and feeling forgotten. 
And so that story has always resonated with me. And then to go to the Storyline Conference and kind of be invited to revisit it, um, kind of, I had I did that and then I preached a series on it. And I preached a series at a church I was working at. And then often I get asked to speak at conferences. And so I was at a youth conference and there was 14 different youth groups there. And I I did the same thing. I preached on that story, which is incredible because Joseph's 17 in the beginning of the story. So they're all kind of understanding, you know, hey, this guy's like us. And uh, it was great. The reactions were incredible. A lot of these kids had gone through a lot and they were sort of understanding their whole story as the chapter they were currently in. So yeah, that's why that's why Joseph. Do you think, I mean, it's a hard lot for Joseph, right, in Genesis as an adolescent, because what kind of, like, jerk off of a dad makes it clear who the favorite is that clearly in that book of, uh, big of a family? You know, like, it's, it's right. it, you know, it, it, it's a strange family dynamic, right? It's a super strange family dynamic. I th- it's interesting, too, because if you know his story is that he stole his brother, like, not exactly a great family man. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, he right. stole his brother's blessing by like tricking him. Um, he came from a long line of like, you know, even <laughs> if you read why the one brother, uh, if you read some uh, scholars suggest that the one brother wanted to save Joseph so that he could be re um, kind of welcomed by his father right back in because he himself had slept with his father's wife. So that's like... <laughs> There's all this stuff going on that's like a super shady story, um, least of which is that, hey, this is my favorite child. Not only – see, the, the scandalous thing about the jacket, right, isn't that it was technicolor. It's that it was long, which meant he couldn't do the work that his brothers were doing. And so um, I think it's really relatable. How many of us have like a – I don't – I am the youngest, but how many of us have younger siblings that – or a family member that doesn't seem to be pulling the weight of the family, or even people you work with. So I think it's a relatable story for sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> He's and a the, jerk of a dad. He's and, the worst. And there isn't there this. There's this Arab or Semitic uh, saying. I think Ken Bailey, the New Testament scholar, heard this from you. Oh, I love him. Oh, uh, he's I yeah, dude. I lived in Pittsburgh five years. He was like the Billy Graham of Western Pennsylvania. People love him out there. But uh, he said, you know, that you know the um, dignity of a man by the length of his stride. And the idea is like, or by the pace of his stride, the idea is like, if you have a long coat, you can't, it's a sign of dignity. So like, right, you you, it's not functional. It's a, it's almost like he gives the youngest brother the CEO's coat and lets exactly. him walk around and play CEO. And it almost seems like he plays into the part, right? Like he kind of, okay, I am supervising my brothers now. I am reporting on the brothers. <laughs> he says that, I know, I love it. He says, go and see if it is well with your brothers. And then he ends up in a well. I don't know. I found that really like ironic. Yeah, and you you also talk about the important to you is, is Joseph Campbell's yeah hero's work. Journey. Yeah, the hero's journey, and and how do you see that? How do you see the kind of? I mean, there's the pattern, right, of of departure, initiation, and return. I right. mean, and you talk about that in the book about how this kind of you know this this maps out. You can see this in Joseph's story. You can see it in a lot of our stories that are stories. Mm-hmm when we're present to their significance. Yeah, I think it's it's life-changing. Uh, like your guest had shared before, I think there is something to be said about humanity and that we always think the chapter that we're currently in is the chapter that defines, right? It's really difficult for us. We often spend time looking backwards, but to understand that the possibility of tomorrow to be different. And so I read a lot. I actually read Richard Rohr also talks a little bit about this sort of hero's journey, but he uses different language than Joseph Campbell. But as someone who, um, before I wanted to go into ministry, not that I ever think I knew that I wanted to go into ministry, but I, I've always loved the stage. So acting for film, acting, I just love it. 
And I think it's that I love good story. I mm. love, yeah, I love the idea of sharing, um, sharing stories because it, it has the power to change. You know, when we watch a story and we see a character go through the roughest things and we can relate and yet the character comes out on the other side is even better. Um, I think it's not finding the silver lining necessarily, but it's understanding the redemptive power of story. Um, you know, why is it that Jesus always talks or mostly talks in story? There are a couple instances where he doesn't, but in general, Jesus just used stories. You know, people would ask him a question. He'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Let me tell you a story. Um, and I think there is such power in seeing our own story and seeing the stories of others um, and kind of seeing the power in that uh, to transform lives. Just even being able to re-narrate, look back and go, what was actually happening in that moment? Because I was experiencing it differently than when I look at it. When you say redemption mm-hmm. or, or, the re- or seeing, being open to redemptive possibilities, no matter the facts on the ground versus silver lining, is that the difference right. between optimism and hope? I would say so. So it's like uh, Viktor Frankl, who also got mentioned at Storyline. And then after that, I just started reading like crazy. But um, Viktor Frankl would really, it's the difference between just sort of that optimistic, it's great. Um, it looks more at reality. So I think about like, um, recently I like to listen to, uh, I love sports. So I was listening to the sports announcer talk about, uh, big Papa as he's known <laughs> for, he was talking about the fact that all the home runs he hit and all the tough times he went through when people accused Ortiz of using, um, you know, enhancers. And he said, you know, that was a really tough time. Mm. Mm. And, and the announcer said to him, most sports people won't admit that. And then he asked him again about the World Series when they were so behind. Do you remember? The Red Sox were really behind. And he said, I have lost belief in that. And so much of uh, what we're taught if we're an athlete or we're, you have to forget the past to move forward right? Forget the past, move forward. That's, that's more optimism. Like, oh, doesn't matter what the last hit was. The next hit will be great. Right. Hmm. Where, whereas hope goes, man, that hit wasn't okay, but that's not the end of the story. And so I think that's sort of the difference. And it's, I love people who are honest about like, yeah, my, my past or the, the hopes and dreams I had. I love a good, I love an honest Christian and we have so few. Um, I love people who are willing to integrate the good and the bad into their, into their life and into their walk. Yeah. You actually talk about um, a little bit, uh, the, the prayer of Jabez, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, I mean, it seems like you have a little bit of this is maybe not the best tool or instrument for seeing the robust nature of human life and, and the complexity, right. complex beauty of our stories. Why is that? I, I mean, I wanted to be the I wanted the prayer of Jabez to be true, um, like as in like as if it was like a prescription, like if you pray this way, this comes out. Um, that that was from a season right when that came out was when a season I was trying to be a really good Christian, whatever that means. Um, I was in college and someone gave me that book. And it basically, if you don't know, the prayer of Jabez was a book that basically uh, said that God wants us to dream bigger and have bigger dreams and bigger prayers. And when we pray for those things, those things will come true. The caveat in the book, however, was if it's in the will of God, which is just the greatest caveat, right? (laughs) And I think that's not helpful, particularly for me who sat beside people as they watched um, a loved one die when they've prayed really hard for that not to be the case. When a baby gets diagnosed with a terminal illness, 
when you're dealing with things that are so huge and the um, it's not enough to say if you had prayed in a certain way, it would have worked out. Hmm. And I also think it takes scripture and makes scripture into this like um, book of recipes. If I do this and this happens, if I do this and this happens, and that's just not, I don't think that's how God is um, working in the world from what I see anyway. Hmm. And you, I mean, as you, as you know, you talk about, Joseph's life, and there's so many moments where things seem like they're settling down. And mm. despite the heartbreak and the pain, things seem like they're at least stabilizing, and maybe there's right. a, a new hope and possibility. And then the rug is seemingly pulled out right. from under from under him. Uh, yeah. And it's not, I mean, in some sense, you're, I think you're kind of making the case in the book, right, that maybe we're not the most reliable interpreters of our own story in any given moment, or at least <laughs> at least when we sort of see it as one of uh, onward and upward, right. or uh, all hope is lost, that mm-hmm. when we hit the polar extremes, we're probably right. not, don't have a good barometer on... We're not in the right place, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the... It was interesting, we had a... a a meeting the other night. We have this group that meets on Thursdays. It's either Theology on Tap where we meet in a bar or it's called Thrive Thursdays where we meet in someone's home. So we were meeting in someone's home and one of the uh, guys was sharing that he has grown up really involved in an evangelical church, which he's no longer felt that he could be a part of. And so he said, I grew up with this false syrupy, make everything better Hmm. group. He said, but then when I was in high school, I really started to like Rocky Horror Picture. And if you don't know, still here in L.A., there are still midnight showings of Rocky Horror Picture. They got it out here, too, in Philadelphia, man. New Hope, Pennsylvania <laughs> runs it all the time. I'm telling you. And so um, I thought that was just a Halloween thing. Turns out, no, there are some people who do it weekly. And he said he really was drawn to the community that was based around that. But what he discovered is that they were very negative. And he said, it is so nice to be part of a community where I don't have to be syrupy sweet, but I don't have to hate everything, <laughs> right? Um, we have to make space for the breadth of the story hmm. and for people to be where they're at with it and how they're processing it, right? The worst thing we can say to someone when they're going through something is like, well, just wait, something better is coming or uh, try to find that nugget of like, well, here's where it's going, Um and I think that's the the rub in when we're trying to be there for people, we often say the wrong thing when we don't kind of honor the story and where it's at. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, I don't like the <laughs> the prescriptive nature of like, if you pray this way, or if you say these three magic words, um, if you have the right intention, I remember the book, The Secret came out. I feel like if The Secret was actually like fully true. I think there's pieces of it that are like, there'd be a lot of millionaires running around being like, I bought this book. (laughs) (laughs) Which actually might be why all these people in Newport have these big, huge homes. I drive her. I like, I was uh, paddleboarding yesterday around and I was just like, who owns these houses and how can I be a part of this? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's the secret. It Maybe is that's a secret. It. Maybe it's a secret society. Well, that's oh. the skull and bones or something like that. Uh, so you talk about towards the middle of the book about the importance of embracing desire and identity and figuring mm-hmm. out the, the the significance of desire. And yeah. So say more about that. Why 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 is desire important? I think some of that comes out of my own story. I'll be honest. Uh, <laughs> Lbh. Let's be honest. Yeah. Let's be honest. Um, 
I grew up in a fantastic home. Um, my mom is British and my dad's Canadian, and I grew up in Canada until I was 14. So I grew up in a culture and community that uh, was very supportive, and yet there were things that uh, weren't practical. So as a kid, loved to act. Um, I remember watching the Oscars at like, I forget how old I was, and just like weeping because I wanted to be involved in it somehow. I loved it. And so I loved the stage. And as a kid, I was shamed for that. Um, I remember uh, people would say things like, well, that's melodramatic. And in, and I was slowly learning that the desire to do that was selfish. And even more so in the Christian community, things that were about us were so um, shamed. So like, I really love like pastors, oftentimes I'll be around pastors and they literally like start talking about all the negative parts about being a pastor. And it's like, it somehow legitimizes the job if I talk about how horrible certain things are. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is, it's a hard job. It's a really hard job. I work a lot of hours, but there are also things that like preaching and things like that, that I just absolutely adore. And I think those desires, those things that God, I believe, placed in me so long ago are part of who I am. And I shouldn't, I've spent too long not wanting to live into those desires. I've spent tel- too long telling people what I'm not good at instead of being um, okay with integrating what I am good at and uh, being okay with the fact that like, yeah, I really loved acting and I wanted to pursue that and didn't because I didn't feel like that was a practical solution. So I went to seminary instead, which is awesome and practical, <laughs> not at all. But I think it was sort of this um, hum and desire that God sort of had put in me to have people experience a story. So for me, preaching becomes a story, a way of telling story and bringing people from one place to to the next, if that makes sense. I feel like it's similar to crafting a character or um, crafting an experience, whether it be um, a film or a play. We're really trying to ha- help people tap into who they are and who God is and telling a story in a helpful way. So yeah, I think we have shamed people for their desires for so long. And then I'm part of the denomination where a bishop tells you where to move, not where you say, hey, I have an affinity or a passion or a love for this area. And our bishops are actually trying to change that um, because it it's interesting. I think God puts these things in us and then we try to deny these desires for so long because it's either not practical or, you know, I, I think for so long I felt like I should have been a, like, oh, I should really want to be a missionary, Right. So I like travel to foreign countries and oh, I loved it. But that's not who I was created to be. Um, Or I would just be really keep apologizing. Actually, at that Rob Bell event, I stood up, which I would never normally do in a room full of 50 people. And I was like, here, and this is actually how Mike McCurg, first time he talked to me was after this. I was like, I get what you're saying about like, like live into your desires or well, I forget exactly what he was talking about. But I said, here's the thing, like I'm a church pastor and I don't even really like church and here's all the things I'm not good at. And like, I'm really bad at like <laughs> setting a budget. Like, uh, I hate that. Like all these things that I'm horrible, I feel like at as a pastor, I can't say hard things to people sometimes, like all these things. And he just like stopped me and Rob's really big. So when he throws his arms out, he's like, stop. <laughs> <And> he's like, <laughs> just stop. And he was like, stop telling us who you're not. Tell us who you are. Mm. 
And it literally has become sort of a a moment for me where, which is really interesting because so many people in that room had a moment at that thing where I said, well, I'm a female clergy when there's not a lot of us. I'm someone who really enjoys acting and being in community and culture that isn't necessarily Christian. A lot of my friends are musicians and different sort of uh, art art people or uh, creatives. They're not you know, necessarily the good churchy people. And I just sort of started to describe who I felt like I am. And Rob said right after it, which is really intimidating, he says, who wants to go to her church? And all these people raised their hand. He said, the difference is if you start telling people what you want and who you are, that is what people are interested in. They're not interested in what you don't do well. You can figure that out. But we spend so long telling people they have to sort of craft their desires to look a certain way. And I don't think... That's necessarily true. So I think we have to know who we are and we have to know what we want. And that's the hardest thing for a character. I just watched Arthur because I have a huge crush on Charlie Hunnam. And I like love love Guy Ritchie films, like own them all. Um, And so I was so excited, like Charlie Hunnam and Guy Ritchie making a film together. Like I actually, the first time I saw the preview was like, yay. But now that I've done so much study of Joseph Campbell, it is such the moment where you can actually see the character. I won't give much away, but you actually can see the character realize who he is. Hmm. Like, oh, this is who I am. And all these people have been telling him who he is. And all these people are telling him what he wants. And he's like, I don't want any of that. And he thinks he knows who he is, but there's this moment where he goes, oh, this is who I am and this is what I want. And not only does it change his own life, but it gives permission for people around him to be who they are. And I think that's the that's the secret uh, that I think, <laughs> the secret, um, that's the thing I think that people fail to realize is when when you are sort of living out your story fully in your desires and who you are created to be, it is contagious and people want to be around you. Like they want to know, like, how do you do it? (laughs) Is this kind of um, the the idea that uh, we sort of have to not focus on what we don't like? Is it sort of like the way people focus on being busy as if it's a virtue? Like, like, oh, I'm busy, which means I'm living the good life or something. It's almost like if I'm busy and stoic, I'm a good person. Right. Right. And I don't think anyone's ever described me as stoic. (laughs) Um, You asked earlier if I was an enthusiast. I'm a two that happens to be really excited all the time. I like Um, that. You know, my my dad's uh, from Canada. And so when we moved to the United States, my dad calls it the excited states of America. He's like, you ever notice people are like, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about that. He's like, in Canada, we're just sort of like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> you know, like no one, no one gets super excited and I, it's rubbed off on me. Um, I think it is. It's the idea of focusing on the thing that makes you come most alive. And what you're and, saying too, I think like it would be easy for people to say, well, okay, that's consumeristic and thing. But I th- what I hear you saying is that, well, actually those are probably false desires or mm-hmm. consumer driven desires. Actually, they're right. just distracting you away from probably what your real desires right. are. Like, like just like a kind of aesthetic church religious culture can make you deny desire. A consumer right. culture can draw you away from your real desires and think, well, no, your real desire is this kind of idealistic sort of upper middle class and always ascending American lifestyle. And it's, right. it's sort of the flip sides of the coin, right? Yeah, and it doesn't mean that your desires are going to be um, like, I should really focus on making all the money. Um it's it's not necessarily that kind of desire. I think we've been sold that that's what it looks like. Um, I tell a little bit about this in the book, but I was a pastor in Irvine, California, which is a pretty um, 
well-off area. I thought I was going to serve the poor, and then I ended up in Irvine, which ended up serving poverty in a different way. And there was sort of this emotional poverty. And I was a youth pastor, but I was also uh, the associate pastor and campus minister. And this was at in 2008 when the markets crashed and people who couldn't afford the houses they were in, there was all this shame going around. And so many people had defined themselves by the job they were doing that I had men sitting in my office saying like, I don't know who I am without that job. I had one college student who went home and his father had committed suicide, but for six months he'd been acting like he was going to work and he wasn't, he didn't have work. And so I think we, we have sold this story that like, once you get the thing, then you're going to be good. There's a thing that you're, you got to get, you got to get the thing. And so the thing might be like the newest Apple product. I have like 17 of them, you know, or the newest thing. Once I get that, right. Hello. Uh, Double. That, it's like, we're like wonder twins. Wonder twin powers activate, you know, put our Apple this watches year We were together. just showing off our Apple watches. Um, once we get that, then my life will make more sense once I do this. And then you get to the end of that and it, and it doesn't. And it's so disappointing. And you're like, but all the commercials said, um, and I think we do that with, um, desires too. like a desire. Isn't necessarily the thing we worship. We worship God. And so God does not leave. And so there is this sense of like, I understand people feeling like it's consumeristic to like, just be whatever you want to. I mean, it's, that must be nice when you don't have to worry about where you're getting your next meal from. Right. But I also think Mm. that there are so many people who are doing jobs that they were never created to do because they're, they're trying to live out a narrative that isn't theirs. I, I see it in ministry a lot. I see people who are burnt out and hate what they're doing. And I'm the worst because if they ask me about it, I just say things like, yeah, maybe you're not supposed to do this anymore. Like, what if what if there's something else that'll make you come alive? And that's not helpful um, to some people. But it is, it's also scary for people. I mean, I hold my ministry and what I do so loosely and know that this is what I'm doing right now and it's what I'm meant to be doing right now. This is the chapter we're in, but I don't know that this is what I'll be doing forever. And um, so I've got to know myself well enough to know, okay, my calling isn't to be a United Methodist pastor. My calling is to share the story of the divine in creative ways. Hmm. So what does that look like right now? It looks like being a pastor. Hmm. Um, I don't know what it looks like next. Um, And it makes the adventure exciting, right? Like, if I know deep down that's my identity, I, I look at life differently. And if I lose a job, it's, Bishop, please don't fire me. But if I lose a job, that's not the end of it, right? Yeah. And in fact, you conclude the book with the idea that you, being attuned to the fact and open to the fact that there's always another act. Always. Right? We have still, again, it's that idea of like, if you exit your 20s and 30s having not lived an epic life, too bad. It's over, right? <laughs> like, if you look at... Uh, TV shows, you look at movies, they're just now starting to make movies that like feature the fact that, hey, like a lot of us keep going after that. Um, (laughs) It's not not just the end. Um, But I find that people, whether they've achieved a really great thing or they've gone through a really hard thing, it can almost look exactly the same because people are stuck there right? So it's the high school quarterback who lived this amazing life. It's the, you know, and, and they miss out on the hope of there's always something next. And it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's particularly working with folks who are uh, more on the elderly, mature spectrum. And it's so fun to me to see like them believe that their story is going to keep going. And it yeah. might not even be like, while well, they're here on earth, like to think there's something I can do that even if I'm not bodily here anymore, 
my story keeps going, right? Isn't this true about Joseph too? Because I mean, it's one of my favorite narratives in in the Bible, and he's not a major character in the rest of the Bible. He's hardly no. ever referenced. Uh, he's not. No one ever talked about him. Yeah, he's not really. In fact, isn't the only New Testament reference that when he when he switches the hand, like he or no, that's Jacob actually. Not. I mean, his that's sons his are referenced. Yeah, his, his dad's. That's a. Is there a weird way in which the Joseph story is really the redemption of Judah? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, you discover later that they have another brother, you know, they, there's a younger brother, and you watch, there's this real moment where the brothers are going to protect their younger brother. They've learned from the story. Yeah, and Judah, um, Judah offers himself in place of Benjamin. Yeah, <laughs> take me, which is not like, remember, this is the guy who stole his blessing from his uh, brother. So it's it's a really, it's the longest story in Genesis, which is interesting, right? Yeah. It's a long story. And we know the most about, I mean, we don't know about Jesus from 17, but we know about Joseph. So that's fascinating to me too, that we have sort of this lifeline. Because often I think when we watch a movie or we um, watch a TV show, we only get these windows of people's lives. And so it's really neat to be told an overarching story because we learn about him from the time he's 17 to the time of death. And so um, we get to see how that looks up and down, um, which is unique in the scripture. Yeah. And you have this interesting progression with Judah, right, too, that there's it, that for years I was always wondering, what's up with this weird thing with Tamar and, and Judah's sons? And, and he, he, it's almost like he makes progress because he's able to say when he ex- he's exposed his fraudulence, yeah. he's like, she's more righteous than me. And then it's like the midway point. And then by the end of Judah's story, he almost looks like the line of Judah. He's he's laying himself down for another. And that's mm-hmm. what melts Joseph. I mean, that's where Joseph can let go. It's, yeah, they all learn from something. I think that's true, too. Like, as we look at our own stories or look at the Joseph Campbell narrative, the person learns something not for themselves, but for others. So it's the key to unlock their own story, but it unlocks the story around them, right? So... When someone around us finds health and wholeness, what's really interesting is it often affects everyone around them. It, uh, one of my good friends grew up in kind of a difficult home situation. She's the first kid to go to college, and then she went to graduate school. What's interesting is that she comes from a family of 12 children. After her, most of the kids went to college, right? When she mm. figured out this thing, this this uh, ability that, that it's even possible to dream this dream that no one in their family, they're from a difficult area of LA, no one in their family had done this. And then when she did it, the story becomes possible. And when she unlocks that and unlocks it for her brothers and sisters who are now like amazing business professionals, right? And I think there's this, which is not the story. I know there's it's just amazing that they're able to do these things. Um, and I think that's the the beauty of a, of a good story is it never just affects the person. It always affects the people around them in a positive way or it gives a lesson and people change around them. Mm. Can I read you something? It's very short. It's like a yes. sentence. This is um, from somebody I interviewed once. We stay in touch a little bit. And uh, Melissa Phoebos, and she's a now, she's a professor and she's a memoirist, but she wrote a book called Abandon Me about her own family story and abandonment. Mm. And she finds her biological father who had left and they're Christians and evangelical Christians. It sounds like. And she goes in here to church with them and hears a sermon about Jonah. And she writes this paragraph, which has stuck with me. And as I was reading your book, it's, it stuck with me. Um, it it kind of came to mind again. Mm. She said, Jonah, whose name means dove, is not brave. He simply exhausts all his other choices. <laughs> the, the only thing left is to choose 
<laughs> to choose is God's will. And even then, after proclaiming his prophecy, Jonas shakes his fist at the Lord. His destiny does not give him peace. It enrages him. It's not what he wants. He begs God to kill him, but God doesn't kill Jonah. God's mercy often doesn't come in the form of erasure. And the story of Jonah seems a parable of what I have often suspected that life is a great choose and adventure story. Every yeah. choice leads the hero to the same princes, the same cliff. There are alternative routes, but there is only one ending. If you make it there, every love is a sea monster in whose belly we learn to pray. Oh, I have goosebumps. She's a remarkable person, a remarkable writer. That's, I feel like that's the sentiment of that paragraph is in some sense, the sentiment of, of your book, like you know, learning to see the beauty and the gift of story of, of the story you're in. Yeah. I think the heartbreaking thing to me is I was this way and I've been with so many people in my ministry who asked the question, which is what is God's purpose for my life? What is the one purpose for my life? What is my one calling? And I think what that does is takes us out of the equation and God wants us to be part of the equation. And it is a choose your own adventure, but we're not alone in it. And I think that's the, I always say to them, I think God has a lot of purposes for your life. <laughs> yeah. And, and the significance isn't in the choices, but the choosing, right? Exactly. Right. And, and you're going to grow in this. And sometimes it's going to be a sea monster that is not such a great sea monster. And, and you are going to learn and you're going to grow. And, and in my own life, the places of pain have often been when I have felt as if I was unchosen by God because I'm going through a difficult time instead of seeing God with me in that time. Or um, I just think there's so much power in feeling like there is more adventure to be had and that just because it hasn't worked out yet, I don't know the ending of my story. So I don't know the ending either, but I like the way it's unfolding for you so far. And thank you for writing a great book and also for thank you. spending some time talking with me. You know, I was going to tell you, if you do want to see more of Mr. Mike McCurry, there is a video that goes with the book. Uh, and Mike tells his story in a really powerful way. Uh, and then also my friends, the Gungors, uh, tell their story. Uh, there are two Christian singers who have gone through quite a lot. I don't know if they call themselves, they are Christians, but I don't know if they say Christian singers. They singers <laughs> who are who Christians. Be Christians. Yeah. yeah. And then a friend of mine who had a heart transplant, another one who is a breast cancer survivor, and another one who is a pastor who went through his wife um, cheating on him. And it is a phenomenal, just groups of stories. So if you ever wanted to check that out, I would love to get you a copy of that. Sarah, thank you so much. And please keep telling stories me. and living your own. I will. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And do check out Sarah's book, What's Your Story? Seeing Your Life Through God's Eyes. It's a great read. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.